Welcome to the Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarden, and I'm thrilled to be talking with Dr. Samuel Solomon about establishing and starting a private practice. This is such an important topic. And even before this podcast was recording, I was talking a little bit with Samuel about our community at the National Register and the growth of this area of interest in developing and starting that practice. And so I think this is a really, really important juncture to be examining this. And I think many mental health providers are gonna be interested in what we talk about today and, and often are looking at their own academic training and background and saying, wow, I didn't have any sort of exposure to the business end of what psychotherapy looks like, whether that's you know email, and respecting HIPAA compliance, electronic medical records, insurance billing? Should I even find an office for myself? Do I hire other people that work for me or with me? What does this all look like? And today, I'm hoping to have a little bit of a different conversation from most podcasts that we do. One that's a little bit more open-ended and more of a journey into how private practice may look, some of the pros and cons, the debates that we might go through along the way and the decision-making too. And even more important than that is this conversation today is going to serve as a little bit of a, a plug for an upcoming series, the Private Practice Builder Series, which is going to be coming out in late May by the National Register. I'm really, really excited to be talking to you more about that Private Practice Builder Series, and I'm excited to have Samuel on board. Samuel is a licensed psychologist, a graduate of George Washington University's clinical psychology program, and in private practice in the Portland area, as am I. Samuel and I connected over the last couple of years as we both moved to the area around the same time. And we made a, a transition actually similarly from more academic places or academic roles, teaching or being professors, and, and even in group practice, each of us respectively to our own psychotherapy offices in the Portland area. So I'm really, really excited to have you here, Samuel. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sam, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to join you um, in this important conversation. I sure wish I had something like this to listen mm -hmm. to prior to uh, diving into this whole private practice world for which I was wildly unprepared yeah. uh, during my training. Yeah, and I, I think that speaks volumes to what I'm hoping we can talk about today, too, and why I think this podcast and, and so much like this is important to our field. We really just don't spend enough time talking about it. When I think about my own experiences in graduate school, and certainly before that, too, I, I, can't, think of, I can't think of a single lecture, a single class, certainly not a course where we focused about the business of psychology or the business of mental health care. And that might not even necessarily be in a super entrepreneurial class. It could even be aiming at understanding HMOs and insurance and what impacts our ability to give good care. But heck, I didn't even know what an MPI was when I was in grad school. What about you? What was your experience like? Well, um, I, I see it as stemming from a broader 
problem in academia. It almost seems like uh, it's inappropriate to talk about mm -hmm. practical matters. Uh, uh -huh. We see this at universities where people are uh, complaining that they don't know how to do their taxes, but they uh -huh. have advanced degrees. Right. And right. that has trickled into uh, clinical psychology training uh -huh. where we have strong academic and clinical uh, opportunities mm -hmm. and learning. And yet we do not how to, we do not know how to launch ourselves well, and we're mm -hmm. not really prepared for that. Mm -hmm. uh, regarding like MPIs, like the national uh, provider identifier, I believe mm -hmm. it's called. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did not, I did not know what that was during my training. And to be fair, I'm not sure I had the bandwidth for it. Sure. Like, sure. Unless it was a part, a formalized part of the training, they had an actual class for professional development where it was yeah. discussed. Then I would have the bandwidth for it because it'd be Built allocated. Out. Yeah. But for them to just toss all this like private practice building uh -huh. on top of clinical and academic training, I think I would have been a little overwhelmed by it all. Right. So in a sense, I think to the APA and like wonder mm -hmm. why this isn't a part of standard curriculum. Right. Yeah. Well, I think we talk a lot about accessibility of services and meeting the needs of our communities and the broader countries. You know, I'm thinking about Canada and the United States when I think about that, because it's a real North American kind of region that we often are looking at. And I think, wow, we talk a lot about meeting the need. And yet we're also in a post Obamacare era where many folks carry insurance. And so how do we connect the two then? Because oftentimes fee for service is gonna only meet a select class of folks, high income earners traditionally. But insurance can be this wonderful bridge to be able to get people in the office and yet shoot, if I don't know how to manage my business, if I don't even know the words that are coming out of my mouth right now, that makes it pretty tough to step out into that world. And I'm really curious to sort of rewind the clock a little bit, you and me. Yeah. Because both of us kind of had a similar time, a similar trajectory. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, because you had a little bit of a taste of private practice, as did I, before we decided, hey, we're going to do this. But take us through a little bit of your timeline, like, and you're thinking along the way, how long have you been in private practice and, and maybe before that? Well, um, I know that's a big question. <laughs> so a little bit about my timeline. I initially started uh, very part-time private practice work late 2018, early 2019, mm -hmm. initially as a psych associate because I had not past the EPPP at that point. Uh, and then <clears throat> once I got licensed, continued private practice work. Um, and the initial structure of it was a sole proprietorship. Okay. Um, and it was my impression at the time based on some correct information and some uh, misguided uh, information that insurance is something to be avoided as a uh. provider. Uh, especially as a mental health provider, uh -huh. or particularly as a mental health provider. Why particularly as a mental health provider? Is there something different about what we do? or The information like I yeah. was given as a grad student is that 
mental health providers have to fight tooth and nail uh -huh. to get reimbursement to justify their services, mm -hmm. that they're only afforded a limited number of sessions with clients, uh -huh. and that it's, broadly speaking, uh, if you can go around that, that's optimal. So the picture you're taking away that I'm hearing is like, this is terrible. And then you're gonna have to fight tooth and nail and you're gonna have to almost take on this defensive stance if you choose to take insurance. Right, that was the impression I was under when I set up my part-time private wow. practice work. I was yeah. like, there's no need to even get involved in this uh, insurance world. I don't wanna be beholden mm -hmm. to these uh, behemoth mm -hmm. uh, organizations. Um, nor do I want to, I have to justify my worth to them, my value. Yeah. Uh, so I, I went kind of around that for a while mm -hmm. and had that private practice work, that small part-time private practice work going for a while, initially right outside of DC in okay. uh, Silver Spring, Maryland. Mm. My grandmother used to live there briefly, but yeah, I know that area pretty well. That's an interesting part of the country. Yeah, yeah, I miss it. Yeah, um, and then uh, relocated to Portland uh, uh -huh. because my uh, partner started a graduate program over here, mm -hmm. and went into private pra uh, group practice uh -huh. and still maintain my private practice, maintaining licensure in Maryland, Washington D.C., and then also Oregon. Wait, so you've got three licenses? Is that right? Yes, D.C., Maryland, and Oregon now. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. And I'm thinking to myself, there are a bunch of questions and things we could go on, but I want to hear more about your timeline too. Yeah. So uh, like similarly, when I moved to Portland, I thought like, okay, I need a job, uh, something more full-time than this modest uh, part-time private practice work I'm doing. Mm -hmm. The only way to actually get uh, a full salary is yeah. a group practice. They're going to give me health insurance. They're uh -huh. going to uh, fill my caseload with clients and uh, take care of all the billing for me yeah. and deal with the insurance companies who are so formidable right. and uh, difficult to handle on your own. You need an army of uh, administrators. Mm -hmm. You're going to need medical billers yeah. and higher staff and things like that just yeah. to handle yourself. Yeah. Because uh, on your own, it's an insurmountable task. And like I was carrying that uh, perception yeah. that on your own, if you're in private practice, you cannot uh, work with insurance. It's, it's uh -huh. too much. So I was at this group practice uh, here in Portland. And over time, you know, through talking to colleagues, it became clear to me that I was, you know, there were elements of what I've been told that were correct, uh -huh. that insurance companies are or can be difficult yeah. to deal with, to work with. Uh, but there is more nuance there. Mm -hmm. like, it depends on the insurance company. And I learned that some are uh, far easier to work with, um, do not manage or micromanage care. Mm -hmm. And there are others that do. And mm -hmm. once I learned that distinction, uh, coupled with feeling like a little like under actualized in group practice, yeah, um, I was like, you know what, I already have this modest private practice work, this part-time work, it's exclusively for people paying out of pocket because I was fearful and hesitant right. to work with insurance. 
But once it was demystified mm -hmm. and made accessible to me uh, by colleagues, I figured what's holding me back? Mm -hmm. um, the demand for our services, uh, the good and bad news is that the demand of, for our services is incredibly high right now. Absolutely. Uh, the conditions yeah. are right for starting a mental health mm -hmm. practice. Yeah, yeah. Emotional, medical, financial instabilities that we're living through. And I, I think those are hard things to see and they're impacting everybody's mental health and their well-being. And yet, like you say, this is a time where services are more in need than ever before. So if we're talking about starting your practice, maybe we're at the perfect moment to be thinking about creating it or at least examining that idea. Is this a possibility for me? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um... In addition to taking on insurance, making our mm. services far more accessible. Yeah. Um, and what also increases the accessibility factor is um, meeting virtually right. for people who are in more remote or rural areas mm -hmm. uh, to be able to uh, access a therapist anywhere in the state mm -hmm. um, is incredibly helpful and increasing in accessibility. Yeah. So, and for the provider, you don't need a physical space, which saves uh, when it comes to that expense. So right. there, there's a lot uh, contextually at this uh, point in time that uh, makes the transition to private practice uh, needed mm -hmm. in, in the population and uh, attractive to the provider. I don't have the math in front of me right now. So I'm kind of like, I'm picturing as I talk with you right now, I'm picturing what those costs might be, right? So like, if I, if I do start from home, right? I, I don't wanna take that risk and buy that off or rent that office space. I probably need like an electronic medical record that might have video calling built in. So that's a two for one. I might even be able to do insurance billing through that. So it has multiple features, but let's say I need that electronic medical record. I probably need an email address that's a professional one. I need to be thinking about HIPAA compliance across the board. I might need a professional phone number. But as I sort of think through, okay, so there's a cost for that, there's a cost for that, there's a cost for that. I'm looking at that, I'm thinking, wow, it's possible. And again, my math is pretty rough, but it's possible we might be looking at like, $100 a month or something to start in today's era versus having to rent that physical office location to just start, having to potentially pay a medical biller because the processes can't be submitted digitally or automatically. There are all these different steps to the process and I'm thinking, wow, this has made it so much more potentially accessible for us too mm -hmm. than ever before. Yeah. Uh, our overhead is right. really, really low. And even yeah. when therapists were working in offices, right. we only need essentially two chairs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unlike other medical offices where uh, specialized equipment is necessary. Right. Uh, right. But add the virtual factor, and yes, it's it's about a hundred dollars, one hundred and fifty dollars at most. Right. To maintain a full private practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's virtual. Wow.
Wow. And of course, there are going to be so many little things that we might be able to add in there. You know, my number, I'm just sort of throwing out there as an idea. Of course, people need, should probably get malpractice insurance and things like that as well. But there are a bunch of these, these pieces that, that, wow, they're more affordable than ever before, more possible than ever before. How did you know that you were ready to step out on your own in private practice? Because cost is one barrier, I think, for many folks. They're thinking not just the cost of having to pay for the software, the, the technical side of things, but also maybe even the lost income if you're in a position where you're doing this and only this. So how did you know you were ready? What, what was the like green light for you? That's a good question, Sam. Um, I think what contributed to my sense of readiness was both uh, the contextual factors mm -hmm. that we discussed earlier that makes starting a private practice right now a particularly uh, attractive notion. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also like for me, it was, as I alluded to earlier, feeling under actualized in, in group practice. Yeah, what just does that like, mean? What does that mean to you? I felt like I can, I can do more uh -huh. um, uh -huh. and that I can build something on my own. Uh -huh. um, that, that's just more of a personal thing mm -hmm. uh, coupled with, I think what is often unspoken in our profession because we are all like natural helpers, givers, yeah. um, that we don't like intuitively, you would think that we do, but we often don't look after ourselves. Mm -hmm. And many of us have gone through years and years and years of schooling. Yeah. Um, some of us have, or many of us have also taken out student loans. Yeah. And we have had difficult training experiences, mm -hmm. uh, many of which might have led to us feeling disempowered. Mm -hmm. And for our own well being, to take charge of our lives, to mm -hmm. build something on our own. Yes, it's very, very stressful and a great deal of privilege is needed to be in place in order for it to be possible. Mm -hmm. But to be able to build something on your own and to be largely beholden to yourself and the clients with whom you work, yeah. that is very empowering, especially in light of recent training which often is the disempowering for the therapist in training. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think this kind of constellation of factors kind of all converged at around the same time. And that, mm -hmm. that made it uh, clear to me that I, I need to do this yeah. uh, for myself. Right. Now, there are a bunch of variables in your life and everybody's life Every, every psychologist that, that confronts this question, should they so desire, are probably gonna be coming at it with a different perspective, a different lens or individual identities or factors that impact their ability to do this. So nothing that we say throughout this conversation should be taken as a given, but I wanna be explicit. Nothing yeah. that we say throughout this conversation is gonna be for everybody or universal. We're all kind of going through this and asking this question for ourselves. And our hope is, my hope is that, that maybe we're naming some of the things that might impact us and it's going to impact us differently. Now I'm thinking for me personally, I, I, how do I want to say this? I, I had work 
And similarly, I was excited about the business side of things. It didn't scare me. That told me I feel very ready, but I wasn't ready in internship. I mean, I couldn't do it then, but still I wasn't ready. I didn't feel ready. I wasn't ready in postdoc because it was very similar to internship. It was at a college mental health service. I mean, at college mental health services, there's, there were some providers that did part-time practices, but even then I didn't even know what to ask them. I didn't know what I didn't know. I just thought, okay, they do that and they do that on the side and maybe that increases their income or something, but I didn't know anything about their work life or the setting or the expenses incurred or marketing of their business or how they talk about themselves differently perhaps than in college mental health where we do have session limits or we did at the site that I was at and um, all of these individual factors and variables. And so when I think about my experience, wow, it took me being in a private practice setting for me to examine all of these pieces and feel like I was more ready to take that leap, to take that risk. And yet, and this is part of the reason why I'm having this conversation with you today, is I wish I had more of this. I wish I had more of these opportunities to talk with providers or to hear from other providers talk about their experience. Because I feel like with role models or with modeled experiences, I might have been able to take that leap a little sooner. I would have been more confident in that. And perhaps the community I'm serving would have been helped more rapidly. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And it, it's un, unfortunate that <clears throat> it, it almost sounds like the way that we're talking about it and the way that it's talked about in general for those uh, seeking to establish their own uh, private practice, that there's some sort of like secret sauce that you need to- It feels like it's You need to learn about it from uh -huh. someone who has more experience. Like right. what is the secret sauce right. to private practice? But why does it have to be that way? Mm -hmm. like, it, like, why is this a secret sauce? Mm -hmm. Why isn't this a very public recipe? Right. Um, right. Out there for everyone to take if that's the path they want for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's- important whether you want to be full-time in private practice and make this your sole income or even part-time and you say hey i i work at an academic institution or i work for an organization and i'm more of a kind of a professional um not in a clinical sense but like uh, in a non-clinical setting and i want to be able to provide to my community even if it is in a part-time manner I, I think the same questions are of before us, you know, thinking like, okay, well, what does it take to do that? Even if I want to see two to three clients a week, the same questions exist. Where do I go for answers? Where are my resources? And so what's going through my head right now is thinking, how did you bridge that gap for yourself? Where did you find resources or help? Even when you say, I'm ready to go, I'm, I'm, I can do this. Where are we turning to for support? Well, um, it's kind of like that secret saucing. I, I would go to have these one-on-one -on -one, mm -hmm. uh, meetings with colleagues uh, who are more experienced than I am and, uh -huh. on, and already are in private practice okay. and would, without using these words, like, hey, what's like the secret sauce? I want to uh -huh. do this. I have no idea how to do it. 
I'm incredibly intimidated by it. It seems daunting, definitely uh, inaccessible, uh, especially as I mentioned earlier, the insurance uh, components of it. And I would get uh, different uh, kinds of feedback. And I would just pull that together and make sense of it mm -hmm. and make choices, uh, decisions from there. The most helpful uh, feedback I've been given uh, was about insurance companies, mm -hmm. like regionally, which insurance companies are the most uh, accessible, uh -huh. uh, helpful mm -hmm. uh, for providers, easy to work with. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that really helped me launch having that information. Uh -huh. uh, it's tragic that I'm even saying this, that mm -hmm. there are some insurance companies that are just so difficult, uh -huh. it, it, it's worth avoiding them. And it, I, it's, it pains me to say that it's mm -hmm. so unfortunate um, because they have members and these right. members need care. Right. And I'm very mindful of that. Uh, but we also need to look after ourselves and our right. own well-being and mental health. And that's a difficult balance for us to maintain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that balance is going to look different for each of us. Back to that comment that I was saying earlier, that this is a, even though there are some shared universal components to it, it's a highly individualized decision and process in, in making this. I, I'm curious to that point, you're full, right? Like your practice is full. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. I mean, things change. And of course, there's turnover mm -hmm. and clients graduate or whatever we want to call it. And but what is full to you? Full is very much an influx thing uh -huh. uh, for me. Um, some weeks I feel more full than uh -huh. other weeks, uh -huh. even if it's the same number of client contact hours. Um, I, I have a working definition of mm -hmm. full. Um, I pretty much have been successful in kind of taking on clients uh, quite regularly. Mm -hmm. and, and people do, as you mentioned, Sam, graduate. Mm -hmm. And there, there is a nice pace to it that I've found, and this isn't really a great answer, mm -hmm. but it kind of organically unfolds. Sure. Uh, I haven't really at this point yet, and I've been doing this since uh, September uh, 2021, uh, taking insurance right, right. Um, when I was actually doing this full-time, when I started doing this full-time. Mm -hmm. I very rarely felt like so full that I cannot accommodate one more person. Right. And then once I do, someone graduates. Right. And it's, it's never really been something that I needed to confront, uh -huh. that I am, I am too full and I need to you know, close the door uh, put the close sign right out right. on the on the storefront uh -huh. um, and not take on any new clients. So right. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Uh huh. Did you find that insurance like filled up your caseload faster? Taking insurance, um, it it absolutely uh, made more uh, referral opportunities a good uh -huh. fit. Uh huh. Um, for instance, uh, one of the resources that I lean on for uh, building my caseload is uh, a local listserv. Mm. And 
often on the listserv, hey, I'm uh, looking for a referral yeah. for X client, they have X insurance. Uh-huh. Uh, because I now I'm in network with a few insurance uh, carriers, I can respond to those emails and say like, yes, I have availability, mm-hmm. perfect, I accept that insurance. So yes, absolutely, taking insurance has helped uh, make a part-time practice mm-hmm. a very sustainable full-time practice. Mm-hmm. It has been the game changer. I think what I'm taking away from what you've shared thus far is how much more possible this might be than when maybe you or even me first set out to do it. There are a lot of little steps to making this possible. And we're not necessarily gonna have time to cover all those little steps today, but just to name some things in case listeners are interested in maybe doing some searches for themselves and some homework for themselves after our podcast. I'm thinking about, like you mentioned earlier, um, the National Provider Identification, the NPI, there are things like TIN or EIN is sometimes what you might hear it called. And I'm guessing when you were a sole proprietor, you had to apply for that, is that yes. right? Uh, yeah. Even as a sole proprietor, I had an employee identification number uh-huh. uh, for tax purposes. Right. The alternative uh, would be to use your social security, which right. obviously is not something I would want on any invoices mm-hmm. sent, uh, sent to my clients. Right, right. Uh, but yes, uh, an EIN or a TIN is uh, a part of what's needed in uh-huh. building the practice. And then I've got more acronyms to throw out there for, for our listeners too. We've got, I think the CAQH, right? Yes. The CAQH, which I don't even, even in this moment, I'm going to be transparent. I don't even know what that stands for. I can't tell you what that breaks down to. Do you happen to know? I do not. And okay. honestly, I'm not entirely sure how necessary it is. It seems like in some ways I've circumvent, circumvented that. Uh-huh. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, my what, understanding, what yeah, it, it, it has this kind of confusing place in, in the process, but my understanding, so if we were to go from like ground up in the, the specifics and then, you know, turning to a bigger, broader question to, to wrap up for today, I'm thinking about, okay, we need our NPI because if we do want to bill any insurance or even if our clients want to submit for out-of-network reimbursement, they need an NPI to go off of. Mm-hmm. So we need that NPI. We need a tax identification number, or as Samuel mentioned, an employee identification number, that TIN or EIN. Those are free. The NPI, the TIN, those are both free. One is uh, like a federal government agency um, that handles the NPI creation. And then the other, I believe it's the IRS, the the Internal Revenue Service Mm -hmm. that handles the EIN. It's fairly immediate. Yeah. They they give that to you rather. As long as you don't get flagged or something like that, I think it is. And then I, my understanding of the CAQH is that it is a basically a, a one-stop resource for all of your information so that when an insurance company is trying to confirm your information, they can go back to that place mm-hmm. to verify that you have basically been credentialed and verified by them. It, it, it's, it takes a complex place though in this process yeah i have an account with them but, yeah um i think in my recent credentialing they never asked or uh-huh. stated that they referred back to that so yeah I'm that's not, interesting i'm not really sure what role if it if it's always a necessary role uh-huh. in getting credentialed 
as as we sort of talk about like what is the place for this what is the role of of this part of the process i think this speaks to the complexity that many folks can feel when they're looking at this and saying well do i need to do it do i not need to do it and i think that my hope is that in our podcast today but in the private practice builder series that we start to get into those specifics and so if you're intrigued by samuel and i talking about this this topic building your own private practice starting your own private practice the specific details the components that you need to have in order if you're kind of interested in what we're talking about today the national register is aiming to do a lot more of this we want to help make this process more accessible we want to distill down really complex ideas or what can feel really complex and make it more possible and that, at the end of the day, I think my hope is that more providers feel confident doing this and more clients are served in the process. As we wrap up today and thinking about our talk today, I'm curious if you have any last thoughts or, or sort of ideas on your mind. Yeah, thank you, uh, Sam, again, for kind of summarizing our conversation. Mm -hmm. um, my concluding thoughts, uh, something that I really want to impart. It's a bit cynical, mm. um, but, but I think many organizations, hospitals, group practices, uh, clinics, uh, counseling centers, I think many of them have somewhat, and I don't think it's conscious or malicious uh, by any means, mm -hmm. but I think they have somewhat uh, of a, an, a vested interest in dissuading their providers from entertaining, mm. establishing their own private practice. And it's often presented by these institutions, organizations, uh, practices as something that is impossible uh -huh. for one to do on their own. You'll need to get your own healthcare, your right. own insurance, and you can't possibly do this on your own. You'll need uh -huh. to do your own billing. You can't do that. Uh -huh. You need a team to do that. Right. And, and this is unfortunately false and mm. it prevents uh, many providers whose desire and dream is to start a private practice it prevents sure. them from pursuing that path before it can even grow and uh, flourish yeah that idea yeah thank you for sharing that samuel and i i appreciate that that recognition too that some of it whether willful or not whether conscious or unconscious some of it almost sustains this barrier. Mm -hmm. These places, folks may not know how to take that leap and it can then continue to propagate this message or perhaps even so far as to say myth that mm -hmm. this is not possible or it's too difficult or you're gonna need you know, to pay consultants to start or you're, there's, it's gonna be so expensive to make this possible. There are a lot of questions and there are a lot of components. It's not to say this is easy, but it's possible. It's far more accessible yeah. than you've been told yeah. in most instances. Yeah. I appreciate you ending, ironically, as you say, cynical, but in a, in a way I'm, I'm feeling optimistic about this, that it's far more possible than maybe we thought before. So thank you so much for being here with us today, Samuel. Of course. Thank you, Sam. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, 
As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education. Once again, I just wanna say one more exciting update about what the National Register of Health Service Psychologists is up to. In late May, we are hoping to announce and release our amazing series on building your own private practice. It's gonna build on a lot of the topics that we talked about today and help you feel like this is more possible than ever before. It's all gonna be included in your membership and registration with the National Register too. So we're really excited and hope you'll join us for our trainings coming in late May. Mm -hmm.